beginning in verse 14. I'm going to give you a little intro to it before we actually talk about it. And yell out the page number if you get there. There are two books in what, in what we call the New Testament, which are letters from the Apostle Paul that are written to a church, a young church, in a city called Corinth. Okay? Um, which Paul helped to found this church there. He was an original missionary to Corinth, and he helped bring the gospel to this place, and people were converted to Christianity, and they began meeting together, and it, and it formed into a young church. Well, Corinth was a very cosmopolitan city. It was um, at the crossroads of several different trade routes. And so that meant that there were lots of goods that were moving through that region. There was a lot of money, a lot of traffic uh, that moved through that region. And, um, but the, here was this young church there in the middle of, think like New York City or, or Dallas in some, in some regards. This place where all sorts of traffic, a lot of money, a lot of influence and power went through that place. And through the two letters, 1 and 2 Corinthians, that we have in the New Testament, we begin to see the issues that, uh, and by seeing the issues that Paul addresses them, we begin to see two dominant themes, um, things that this, that this young church struggled with. Um, the first one is this, is that this young church was struggling to know what it looked like to be a Christian in the midst of this cosmopolitan place. What it looked like to be a Christian in the midst of, uh, of the world. and What it would look like to be different um, than the world around them. And I think that we actually struggle greatly with the same thing. In, in most areas of our lives, um, our sexual lives notwithstanding, right? We really struggle to know what it means to be different sexually. Um, in other words, uh, what they were asking, what we need to ask is, if I claim to be a follower of Jesus, how does this change my worldview? How does this change the way I see the world? How does it change the way I look at uh, my sexual life and all of your life, really? But since that's what we've been talking about, what does this look like with my sexuality? Um, Second thing that we begin to see about this church is that they had some really bad theology, which was leading them to think that um, all the promises about uh, life being perfect one day, which are the promises of Christianity, that God is going to come make everything right, the people in that young church had begun to think that that was actually happening now. And so they were kind of living like, oh man, this is it. This is as good as it gets. And so they kind of their lifestyle reflected that. As you can imagine, with these kind of two different forces working, as you can imagine, their sexuality became really confused. Okay, It became kind of a, a hodgepodge of all sorts of different things. Well, let's listen real quick to some of Paul's um, admonitions to them in the first letter that he wrote them. Okay, we're going to read tonight from the second letter and study it. But from the first letter, Paul says a few things to them. He says in 1 Corinthians 5, 1, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not even tolerated among the pagans. For a man has his father's wife. Oh boy, like uh, you're, you're sleeping with your dad's wife or maybe your, your dad's, uh, maybe your, your stepmom or something like that. That's not good, right? I think we could all nod. That's not good. Um, that was happening in the church. Okay. Uh, 1 Corinthians 6.13 says, The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. Uh, a few verses later, Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but sexual, the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. And later in chapter 10, he says, We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. You can hear the apostle writing to this young church and saying, Look, you've got something is different about you. And therefore you can't keep acting like the world around you. 
Okay, we hear that throughout, and that's not even half of the times he is very explicit with them uh, about their sexuality in this first letter. But as we're about to see in the, the second letter, in 2 Corinthians, Paul has actually gotten a report back from them, and he's really encouraged about stuff that is going on, about the way they've responded to the letter. And we're going to see, we're going to read down through uh, verse 18, the end of the chapter there, uh, and go to 7-1, and then I'm going to skip verses 2 through 7. And I'll just tell you, 2 through 7 are Paul, he's like praising, he's like, y'all are doing awesome. Okay, but I'm going to skip it for the uh, purposes of tonight. It's not super, um, it doesn't intertwine well with what we're saying. Um, and I think you'd understand that if you read it. So, we're going to begin in verse 14. We're going to read down a little bit, and then we'll pray and take a look at this tonight. 2 Corinthians six fourteen: Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness to do with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk with them. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you. And I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, down in verse 8, for even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though for only a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief, grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. But also what eagerness to clear yourselves. What indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have, been, you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. Let's pray real quick before we look at this. God, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that it not only has meaning and intention for a church 2,000 years ago, but it has meaning and intention for us in this room tonight. And I pray that by looking at it that You would speak to us. And that You would go down to the very recesses of our heart and speak kindly and tenderly to us as that of a father to his children. We pray that you do that by your spirit now. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, when I began to study Spanish in high school, and then when I continued to study uh, Hebrew and Greek in seminary, and as most of you will know from studying linguistic studies here at the university and in high school, when you begin to study a foreign language, it really forces you to kind of relearn your native language. Because as you're looking at the grammar of other languages, you begin to think, I have no idea what some of those words mean in the English language. And so when I was in seminary, I'm going through all these verb tenses and all this stuff in Greek and Hebrew. I literally was online. I'm just like, I have no idea what that means in English. Like, I don't know the equivalent of that in my own language. So it forces us to kind of go and relearn some things about our own grammar. Well, I think, and what I'm going to suggest tonight, is that understanding... Understanding what an author's intent is, or what a speaker's intent is, 
makes a huge difference as we begin to understand the message that they are trying to convey. What I'm going to suggest is that the grammar of the gospel is hugely important if we're to understand our sexuality. Okay? We're going to get this tonight. So we're going to study and we're going to look at the grammar of the gospel first off. Beyond that, we're going to look at the gauge of the gospel and then finally at the goal of the gospel. Okay? So first off, the grammar of the gospel. I know you guys have been wondering, what in the world does this even mean? Well, we're going to look at it. Um, As I briefly mentioned... We have to relearn our own language, okay? Well, verbs in foreign languages are particularly hard. Because you don't just have tenses like the present and the past and the future. You have these things called aspects and voices and moods and all this other stuff that... Do we have that in the English language? I don't know. I I really don't know. Uh, If it exists, then it's beyond me and my 8th grade grammar just didn't quite do it for me. I don't know. But what's really important is the the mood of a verb, okay? Because there are three moods to a verb, the indicative, the imperative, and the subjunctive, okay? We're just going to forget about the subjunctive tonight because it doesn't help me. Um, But when we look at the gospel, we have to understand the the indicative and the imperative of the gospel. And to get these confused, I would suggest, will totally derail what you think about Christianity and the way that you hear the Christian message. But to understand them will allow you to hear the Christian message, the gospel, and it will bring you to freedom. Okay? So what is it? The indicative mood in grammar is used to convey ordinary objective statements. It is simply this. This is true. Right? That is an indicative statement. It is communicating truth. It is not interested in possibility, in giving opinions or anything like that. It's saying this is true. The indicative This is true. The imperative mood, however, as you may or may not know if you're like me, um, is the the mood of command. Okay, that that one's more obvious. We seem to use that word a little bit more. Uh, It is saying, now go do this. Now go do something. So you have the indicative. This is true. The imperative, now go do. Okay? In the entirety of the Bible, the message of the Bible, including our passage tonight, we have to see that the imperatives that we read in Scripture, the places where we see it saying, do this, now go do this, thou shalt not do this, all of these things, the imperatives necessarily have to flow out of the indicative. They have to flow out of what is true. Okay? The grammar of the gospel is this. This is true, now go do. Okay? This is true, now go do. And again, for us to misunderstand this, and for us to put the commands of Scripture before the the indicatives of Scripture, is going to turn the gospel into something like legalism and morality. Okay? And you will forever be thinking that God's love for you, His approval of you, uh, your security in Him is dependent on what you are doing. We can't get those confused. Okay, let's talk about how Paul does this and lays this out for us in this passage. Look down in verse 14. It actually begins with an imperative, which is confusing given what I've just said. Paul says, Do not be unequally yoked, which means married, with unbelievers. And then he uses five different kind of analogies or illustrations as to why this uh, doesn't work. We talked about it a few weeks ago, why I I would suggest that a believer is not supposed to be married with an unbeliever. I'm not going to go back to it tonight. But that's that's what he's talking about here. But we look down in verse 16 
where he roots that imperative, do not be yoked, he roots that in the indicative. This is true. What does he say? For we are the temple of the living God. We are the temple of the living God. Therefore, do not be yoked with an unbeliever. Okay? He then reinforces this in 7.1 when he says, Since we have these promises. What promises, Paul? Well, he gives them to us. Um, he goes on to say what's true of a Christian in that little indented section, which means that it's a quotation from the Old Testament. He's quoting lots of Old Testament passages to prove his point. He's saying that you are God's special people. That He is with you. That mean, that's what it means for us to be His temple. That He is with you. That you are positionally different from the people and the culture around you in terms of your relationship to God. That as a Christian, you are different than the world around you. You are His sons and daughters. Okay? That is what's true of a Christian. That is the indicative of Christianity. And what he says is, because this is true of you, now go live differently. Go live differently. And the strength comes from the indicative. Because God sends His Spirit into His people. Okay? Um, This is how we have to understand this. And this is how we have to understand the commands we just read from 1 Corinthians As Paul writes to his people and says, flee sexual immorality. Don't keep doing that. You have to be different from the people around you. That's what's going on here. Uh, I was recently reminded of this scene uh, from the movie Blood Diamond. I don't know if you've ever seen this movie, but there is an it's a pretty intense movie. There is a really intense scene at the end um, where uh, Leonardo DiCaprio, he's kind of the star in the movie, but... It's actually the young boy, his name's Dia in the movie, Dia Vindi, and his dad Solomon is there with him. So it's Solomon, uh, Vindi, uh, Leonardo DiCaprio, whatever his name is in the movie, and this kid, this kid named Dia Vindi. And Dia, in this moment, he has gotten engulfed in the, the diamond trade, the under, underground diamond trade in Africa. And he's been brought in at a young age. He's just a boy. He's like 10 years old. And they brought him in. And in this scene, he's standing in front of his dad and in front of Leonardo DiCaprio, um, and he's holding a gun, and he's as if he's going to kill them. He he's intends to kill them because they have this diamond. And his boy looks, his dad looks up at him in this moment, and he says, "Dia, what are you doing, Dia? Look at me, look at me. What are you doing?" And as he's talking to his son, he stands up and he begins to inch closer and closer to his boy. He says, you are Dia Vindi of the proud Mindy tribe. You are a good boy who loves soccer in school. Your mother loves you so much. She waits by the fire making plantains and red palm oil stew with your sister Nyanda and the new baby. The cows wait for you. And Babu, the wild dog who minds no one but you. I know they made you do bad things. But you are not a bad boy. I am your father who loves you. And you will come home with me and be my son again. And by the time he gets to that final word, he's holding his son who is weeping and who has dropped the gun down to his waist. And his father embraces him as Dia is sitting there weeping. This is what's happening in the gospel. Dia's dad is giving him the indicative. He is telling him what is positionally true about him as a son of his father. About his place in the family. And he reminds him of that. 
And Dia melts. Out of that love, Dia melts and he obeys because he knows who he is. He knows that his father loves him. Now imagine how drastically different that scene would have been if his dad stood up and said, Dia, put your gun down. Put your gun down. I know they've been with you, but you shouldn't do that. You're better than that, Dia. And he starts just pleading with him, telling him, barking out commands, do this, Dia, do this. That scene would have been totally different. And Dia might very well have killed his dad and the other guy. But that's not what happens. Confusing the grammar of the gospel, getting the indicative and the imperative of the gospel mixed up, is the same as that scene if it would have unfolded the complete other way around. And it changes the whole thing. It changes the gospel itself into something completely different. Something completely different. In fact, if the gospel itself means good news, good news, and all you are to ever think about Christianity, and all you are to ever hear from the Bible is the phrase, flee, stop sinning, stop doing this, stop doing that, then the gospel will never be good news to you. Because you will begin on a performance treadmill that has no end, that has no, no off button. You will begin trying to climb a ladder to God that has no end. And you will be miserable. And you will die doing that. With no joy, with no hope, with no comfort and security in the gospel. So then, before we go any farther and look at these other things tonight... Are the indicatives of the gospel true about you? Is that what is true of you? Are you a child of God? Are you a son or a daughter of the king of the universe? Have you been brought into relationship with him through what Jesus has already done for you? Is that true of you? I'm not asking you if you've been sexually pure this week. I'm not asking you if you've been sexually together for these last few months or for this last year or for any point in your life because the Bible does not do that on the front end. It does not say to any of us that you have to come get your sexuality in order before you come to Jesus. No, that is a false gospel. You come to Jesus as you are, broken, bruised, marred by sin and its effects, And you come to Jesus and say, I believe that what you did was for me. Believe that. Rest in the indicative. And then hear the imperative of a father who loves you. And who is saying, now obey me because I love you. I'm telling you what's best for you. Flee sexual immorality. Stop sleeping with your boyfriend or your girlfriend. Keep your clothes on. You weren't meant to do that outside of marriage. It is only out of the indicative that we can hear the imperatives rightly. When we look and we understand and believe the grammar of the gospel, we can begin to understand the gauge of the gospel. Okay? Secondly tonight, the gauge of the gospel. So what is the gauge of the gospel? That is, how do we know that the gospel is actually what is happening in us? How do we know that? Let's reread verses 8 through 10 that are down before you. Paul says, For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a while. 
But as it is, I rejoice, not because you are grieved, but because you are grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Paul says that we know it is the true gospel that is at work in us, and not some false substitute such as legalism or moralism or anything else. When our guilt that we experience and feel, when the grief that we have over our sin and over the things we do wrong, leads us into repenting. Leads us into moving toward God and saying, God, I am so sorry that I have done this. This is not what you would have for me because I know you love me. You have called me to something better. You have given me a better way. Paul says, if the grief that is at work in your heart when you do something you know shouldn't do leads you to that, and friends, you may be believing the gospel and that is good news. Because repentance that is from the gospel leads to a life that has no regret. It's a repentance without regret. And Paul contrasts this with what he calls a worldly grief. So you have a godly grief and then you have a worldly grief. The worldly grief uh, leads you into what, what he eventually says is death. But the way of death is shame and embarrassment. You fall under the weight of something you don't know what to do with. And so what do you do? You try and hide. You run from it. You ignore it. You blame other people. And friends... I hardly have to tell you this. You know what that brings. You know what a lifetime of only experiencing shame because of what you have done, of only experiencing guilt with no pressure relief valve, as it were. That leads you to death. You will wilt away as a person because there is no joy in that. Godly grief produces repentance without regret, but a worldly grief produces shame that leads to death. Look, some of us, and if not us, then some of our friends have decided that the easiest way to avoid any guilt at all in life is to avoid religion totally. And Christianity is included in that. Because Christianity certainly has uh, things about it. There are imperatives in the Bible. The Bible calls us to live a holy life and calls us to, to turn from our sin. But people will totally leave religion because of this. Because we want to avoid any sense of guilt, any sense of grief, when someone tells us that we should do something other than what we're currently doing. Because of sin that is in us by nature, we hate. We hate when people tell us what to do. Um, Ricky Jones, who's a pastor down at Redeemer, he talked a few weeks ago um, about a guy named N.T. Wright, who's an Anglican bishop and scholar, says some tremendous things, says some things I don't agree with. Um, and he's a former professor at Cambridge, which is, I think, a community college over in England somewhere. Um, and he's basically the only one among his rank in academia who still holds to the authority of the Bible. He still believes the Bible and what it says. And he talks of remembering when so many of his peers, who he kind of climbed these academic ranks with, when they began kind of discarding Scripture... When they begin throwing it aside and saying, oh, no, it really doesn't say that. That's not what Paul means. That's not what Jesus means. And he says it was so convenient that they begin throwing off the commands of Scripture as they begin sleeping with their boyfriends and girlfriends. That you see, their moral choices, and conveniently about their sexuality, produced them, led them to a point where they had to ignore the Bible. They had to start making all sorts of corrections and all sorts of 
alternate ways to explain things. It's convenient then. When the Bible says things and you say, well, actually, I want to live this way, so I'm not going to do that. Well, okay, I can't tell you not to do that other than when you do that, you're divorcing the gospel from the true gospel from what it is. Right? And you have some false gospel. You have your own gospel. So I'm going to take a few minutes. This may seem weird and out of place, but I think it's pretty related at this point. I want to take a few moments and talk about um, homosexuality in the gospel. Because unfortunately in our culture, homosexuality has become kind of that issue that with people who struggle with it, it leads them to a place where they think, I can no longer be a, I can no longer be a Christian at all. Okay, now hear me out. I, I affirm the traditional biblical understanding about homosexuality. I do, that it was not God's original intention. That it is not the way that He created this world. And therefore, the acts of homosexuality, the homosexuality as a lifestyle is wrong and it's sinful. You have to hear me say that. I, it is. I don't know how else to get around it from the Scriptures. Um, and as such, fantasizing in that direction, acting out on those impulses is wrong. And as a pastor, I would call you to repent of that. But hear me out. I realize that as soon as I say that, some of you are going to look at me and say, Brent, that's not fair. Because I have friends, or I myself never had a choice in it. This is just how I am. This is how I was made. I never remember deciding to choose it over the other. It's all I've ever known. Um... Well, I spent a lot of time looking at this. I spent a lot of time looking at Scripture, praying, studying, reading a lot of things about this. I was greatly helped by a guy named Wesley Hill. He has a short book called Washed and Waiting. It's tremendously helpful. I would recommend it to any of you um, on this issue. And through this, I will not and I cannot deny that some people truly believe that they are oriented this way. I'm not going to deny that. Without any sort of conscious switch in their minds. And with all tenderness and gentleness that is within me, I want all of us to understand that we live in a world that is tragically and deeply broken and flawed by sin. The word sin is not relegated to some one-off instance of something that you did wrong at one point in time. Sin is the problem. It is the problem behind all the evil that is within the world. With everything that is not the way it's supposed to be. With all brokenness, everything. Sin is behind everything. The problem of sin is behind a family member's or some other perpetrator's desire to touch you after you said no. That is sin. The problem of sin is behind your denial, your outright refusal to stop getting naked with the person you're seeing because that feels better to you and that is more tangible than God's love for you. There is sin behind that. And friends, there is the problem of sin is behind the homosexual desire and agenda and all of it. 
And sin plays itself out differently in all of these ways. Okay? It does. Okay? I would look at every one of those people uniquely and differently as I would try and deal with that sin. I think the Bible would do that too. If you're here tonight and you struggle with homosexual desires, I want you to know that the gospel is for you. The gospel is for you. The message of what the Bible says is for you. You do not have the special sin that precludes you from the love of God. You don't. You are not in some way broken beyond repair. You're not. In the gospel, we find that God loves sinful, broken people so much that He sent His Son Jesus to come and to be with those people and to begin to repair what is broken. And this may mean that you are never able, as a friend of mine who struggles with this, that you are never able in this life to pray the gay away, as he said. I thought it was funny, but it, it's sad. Because he realizes that people, there are people who struggle with this who don't want it and never seem to be able to get rid of the desire. The Bible does not promise you that you will overcome it in this life. The indicative of the gospel, if the indicative of the gospel is true of you, that you are a child of God, and if you are seeking to obey the imperatives of Scripture which include fleeing from sexual immorality, you have to know that your sin is no different, in category, is no different from those of us in here who are heterosexual. That when we meet Jesus, He messes with all of our sexualities, and you have to know that. He doesn't leave any of us where we are in our sexual sin and say, that's okay. He deals with us uniquely, individually, And He calls us out of it. He calls the heterosexual people to chastity outside of marriage. And He calls the homosexual people, people with that desire, to chastity. But the Bible gives no provision of marriage. And that means that if you are someone who struggles with homosexuality, or if you have friends who struggle with homosexuality, who are struggling to obey Scripture and be faithful to their God. And you have to know that those people are going to have and experience a sense of loneliness that we who are not of that, of that feeling will never know. We will never know what that's like to not even have the ability to marry, to not have the ability to be in relationships of that sort. And that means two things, and we have to hear this. Christians need, we need to repent of our self-righteousness and our mentality that homosexuality is the unforgivable sin. We have to repent of that. That is wrong. It is wrong. We have to repent. Repent of the way that we have placed the the imperatives of the Bible before the indicative for people who struggle with homosexuality. That we have looked at them and said, you must get this part of your life together before the gospel can be true for you. That is wrong and that is sin. Jesus did not do that with you and He does not do it with them. 
He says, come to me as you are. Broken. He didn't come for the righteous. He came for sinners. Come to Jesus wherever you are. (sighs) Secondly, it means this. That the Bible does not give provision. Because the Bible does not give provision for homosexual marriage. Then we as the Christian body. We as Christ's very body. Those who have been brought to Him by nothing of our own doing. We have to be ready and willing to accept and love and encourage and challenge and lovingly rebuke and all of the things that you do with your other friends. You have to be ready to do that with your friends who struggle with homosexuality. You have to. You have to. You have to let them know that the church is a hospital for sinners. It is a place for broken and messed up people. It is not a retreat for the righteous people. And I think we all need help with this. We need to repent of the ways that we have not loved those around us who are struggling with this. And we have to be extremely willing to welcome, this, to welcome them into our community. Because guess what? the loneliness that they undoubtedly experience is off the charts compared to some of us who experience heterosexual desires uh, experience. It is of a different nature. And we must be the body of Christ to them. We must be their source of intimacy and relationships. We have to be. There's no other choice for the church. So, wherever you are tonight, wherever your struggles are, you need to ask yourself, what kind of grieving happens in you when you confront something in your life that you know you ought not do? If you're driven to despair and to shame and to wanting to just ignore it and wanting it to go away, which will lead to death, and friends, that is of the world. But if you are in a place where you hate what you are doing, you hate what is broken in and about you, and you want to change, and friends, that is from God. That is of the Gospel. And the Gospel calls you to God Himself and says, I forgive you. You are my son. You are my daughter. Come to me. I will free you from that bondage. I will free you from that feeling. I will free you from that desire. You may not know it fully in this world, but you will be freed one day. Lastly, and very briefly tonight, it is in understanding the grammar of the gospel and the gauge of the gospel that we understand the goal of the gospel. So what is the goal of the gospel? Paul says in 7 verse 1, Since we have these promises, Beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. What is the goal of the gospel? The goal of the gospel is your and my holiness. But that holiness is not an end in and of itself. That God has set us apart. He sent His Son Jesus to begin to redeem what is broken in this world. And He began to do that so that one day there would be a people who would come to God and would worship Him. 
That we would fear Him. That we would revere Him and worship Him as He deserves. Because friends, He did it all for us. He doesn't do 95% of it and then say, go get busy doing the last 5%. He does it all. He does everything necessary for your salvation and for your life. And He did it in the person and work of Jesus on the cross. And this means that no matter how screwed up you are sexually, or no matter how perfect you think you are sexually, you both need Jesus. Because one of you is in touch with your, with your sinfulness. The other, the other one of you is delusional about your sinlessness. And you both need Jesus. And Jesus is offered to you in this gospel. And He has done everything for you. And friends, when you see that, when you see that God has done everything necessary for you to heal the brokenness that sin has caused, sexually and otherwise, then you will worship Him. You will, you will fear and revere, and revere Him as your holiness is one day brought to completion. That is the gospel. That is the grammar of the gospel. We have to get it this way. Do not, do not be content with trying to obey rules to get God's pleasure. It will kill you. Understand the grace offered in the gospel. And it will give you life forever. Let's pray.